0: Our scripture reading this evening is Galatians 1 verses 1 through 10. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession about the sufficiency of scripture cites this passage in particular as one of many that express the completeness of of the gospel as it was made known through Christ's apostles. according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weakness. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession this evening is Article 7. We'll read these words aloud together. God speaks to us through His Word. This is our confession of faith as the church in response to God's Word. Article 7 of the Belgic Confession. Let us say together, We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely, and that everything must was, was believed to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the holy scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to or subtract from the word of God This plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time or persons, nor counsels, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature, and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, Test the spirits to see if they are of God. And also, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's really two levels at which we need to hear what we confess together in Article 7 of the Belgic Confession. There is... One level at which what it says is incredibly clear and simple. That for salvation, for serving God faithfully, you have all that you need in Scripture. The language of, at the end of that first paragraph is where I drew the lesson, the sermon title for this evening. For since it is forbidden to add to or subtract from the Word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Scripture is perfect and complete. This is what we call the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Thus far, very simple. But there are many questions that start to arise. In many ways, this doctrine is both attacked and also ways that it is misused that we need to be aware of. And many of the attacks, many of the misuses of that doctrine um, can be quite Powerful can be quite effective, can often uh, cause trouble, even for those who have grown up with this doctrine and how to understand it rightly. And so this evening, I want to do some work building up to that simple doctrine we just confessed. So on the one hand, it sounds simple. It is simple. Scripture is enough. But to avoid the confusions, the ways it can be misused, we need to go a bit deeper for how we get to that. And really, the big idea for... Let's see here. All of point one and uh, point one through 2A, the big idea is that the last three lessons in the Belgian Confession all need to go together. What we said about inspiration, what we said about the canon of Scripture, and what we say this evening about the sufficiency of Scripture all need to be held together in one place. And that's what I want to help us to do for a few minutes starting out this evening. So, a bit of review. Inspiration and Canon. The last two weeks serve as the foundation for what we confess this week. Letter A. Two weeks ago, we studied the doctrine of inspiration. The confession of faith that all scripture is breathed out by God. And that quote, breathed out by God, as we've now seen for three weeks in a row, is coming from 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this is not the uh, point for this quote right now, but notice that there's already a suggestion of the sufficiency of scripture, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But remember, what was the thing we drew out of this connecting inspiration and canon? That when Paul says these words, when he says all scripture, He's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. They weren't called the Old Testament then. It was simply the scriptures. And so Paul was speaking of a pattern that already existed. And that pattern was that God would act publicly, definitively in history. That in the midst of, in the context of that acting of God, we think of the Exodus in particular, God would then give revelation to his people, interpreting that great thing that he did. And that thing that he did would be public, open, public, many witnesses, uh, the giving of revelation would be surrounded by miracles confirming the revelation, and that that giving of Scripture would be poured out in the context of God acting in history. Well, the resurrection was one of those events, public with many witnesses. And the revelation of the apostles was of that pattern of what God had done through the Old Testament. And that brings us then to the idea of the canon of Scripture, letter B. Last week, we studied the doctrine of canon. The canonical books are those that the church received as representing the witness of the apostles to Jesus Christ, arising out of the, quote, apostolic matrix of the early church. So, briefly, remember what we wrestled with last time, that all of the lists of criteria for what counts as canon don't work for all the books of the Bible, In fact, the idea of a list that we would go back and try to sort out just isn't how it works. Rather, it works in that way that I just described. God acting in history, and then God providing revelation, interpreting that thing that he had done. This is what happened with Christ. And the apostles, the New Testament, is that apostolic witness to what had happened in the great public events of what Christ had done, especially his death and resurrection. The point is not a list of criteria. The point is rather that that apostolic testimony explaining what God did in Christ is what brought into existence the church. The church does not create the canon. Rather, the canon of Scripture brings into existence the church. Letter C. The idea of canon is a principle internal to Scripture, not a measure imposed upon Scripture from without. God's word calls, summons, gathers, and creates his people. And yes, that is just copied and pasted from last week. All right, so you need sort of this this running start then, what we are saying here. Inspiration, when Paul speaks that way, is part of this Old Testament pattern. It was a pattern by which God's word, interpreting things he did publicly, brought into existence his covenant people. One of you used the analogy, I think it's a good one, uh, talking to me about this, it being like a constitution that brings into existence a group of people, establishes the people. This is what God's Word does. And so it's not about a list of criteria by which you choose which books are in and out. It is rather, this is the collection of testimony that brought us into existence in the first place. All of that leads to conclusions about the sufficiency of Scripture. Maybe you can already sense how that idea is coming, but these are the deep roots for what we say about the unique sufficiency of Scripture as God's Word. To number two then, this being now the main point for Article 7 of the Belgic Confession. Number two, the sufficiency of Scripture. We confess that Scripture is sufficient in two ways. When we say sufficient, we mean scripture is enough. Well, it's enough for what? Well, two ways in particular, and both of these are quotes from the Belgic Confession. First, everything one must believe to be saved, everyone everything one must believe to be saved. And second, the entire manner of service which God requires of us. The opening sentence of the confession really is the whole point being Applied, explained throughout all of it. We believe the Holy, this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. Letter A. This doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture naturally follows from what we have confessed about inspiration and the canon of Scripture. And the apostles signaled an awareness of this. Now, they don't go around saying, hey, what we're doing is the Bible, okay? They they didn't talk that way, rather because they they were being sort of swept up in, they were participating in this pattern, and it's like they're realizing it's the case as it's happening, that this is what they are doing, that that thing God had done through Moses, God is now doing through them. And so the apostles speak in many places of a kind of definitiveness to what was happening through them as they testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read from Galatians 1 as one example of this. It's the example that our confession points to. Galatians 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There's this language of a definitiveness to the gospel that's being proclaimed. Notice something in that verse that's very striking. If, we're talk, if we think of canon as a list of criteria, one of the main criteria if someone makes up a list is that it comes from the apostles. Now remember we said it doesn't really work. Luke was not an apostle, for example. But let's just say we go with that list. Paul says, even if we should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached... Being an apostle isn't enough. That the apostles are actually pointing to this thing that has happened. This gospel that is continuous with the Old Testament. Scriptures fulfilled in Christ, testifying to the event of Christ. And Paul is saying he is, even he is not the source of. Him saying it is not the reason it ought to be listened to. But rather there is this Christ-centered thing. This gospel that he is proclaiming and that he is submitting to. That he is receiving and then passing on to them. How can we make sense of that? Well, it's everything we've been saying about inspiration and canon. That Paul was participating in this thing that God was doing in giving revelation to confirm, to explain, to apply, to proclaim the events of the resurrection of Christ. That then leads to a conclusion that there is a sufficiency, an enoughness, a definitiveness to what comes out of that time period. That which comes out of the time of the resurrection, the time of all the supernatural gifts given to the apostles, is definitive. There will not be more, because that is how revelation has always worked. The scriptures are tied to those public historical events, to the language I'm using there is apostolic matrix, that whole combination of features of that time period. They are tied to that, and that time no longer exists. That is why we say there is therefore no new revelation because the revelation was tied to those events. Canon, again, is not a list of criteria by which something is in or out. It is rather the recognition that something has happened. These texts, as God's word, brought us into existence as the church. So, for example, if we were to find a document uncovered in some clay jar from uh, many, many centuries ago, the time of the apostles, and it were somehow definitively proven that that document was written by the apostle Paul. If it was somehow definitively proven that that document was written by Peter, one of the apostles, would it be scripture? And we all say together, no. No. Because it is not one of those texts that brought the church into existence. It did not function in that way. Remember, canon is not a list of criteria. Canon is a description of this event that happened. And whatever else we might find, it might be interesting, it might be valuable for historical reference in certain ways, but it would not be scripture. Because scripture is that which functioned in that way at that time period. That whole big picture... God speaks, interpreting his public actions. There are miracles surrounding the giving of that revelation and that that speaking brings the church into existence is the foundation for then why we reject further, revel- further revelation. And there's two main versions of that that the Belgian Confession has in view when it says this, letter B. This means we reject the idea that the authority of church tradition functions in any way as further revelation above or in addition to Scripture. This is what the Reformers are fighting at the time of the Reformation, is in the Church of Rome, ways of talking about the authority tradition of the church that function in a way as a further revelation, clarifying, making things known by which the Scriptures were not sufficient. And in debates about this sort of thing... There are those who will say, representing Rome, look at how there's all these different interpretations of Scripture. You need the authority of the church to reveal to you, supernaturally, as God reveals, to reveal to you what the right interpretation is. And they will make much of the diversity of interpretations and make much of the need for a a kind of further interpretive authority to settle the question. The point at the time of the Reformation is that that was being spoken of in a way that was at least functioning as, and at times was even articulated as, an additional revelation, additional revealing that was needed. But why do we reject that? Well, because of all that we have said thus far. These scriptures brought us into existence as the church. They created us. God speaks through them. God speaks powerfully and effectively through them. And we say, now, Rome, to be sure, interpreting things can be difficult, including statements from the Church of Rome. They have to be interpreted. What's going to solve that problem? Now, in fact, there's a real danger that the, uh, the corrosive acid that apologists for Rome will use to say, uh, you, you can't know what interpretation of Scripture is right, that that corrosive acid ends up taking away our ability to know anything. And there are so many who go down the path of going to Rome to try to solve the problem of how do I know the right interpretation who then end up in atheism. Because that acid that says God cannot make himself known to me clearly doesn't just apply to scripture. That will work on anything. That will work on what Rome says, what church authority says. It'll work on your own spiritual experience confirming scripture. The question is a simple one. Either God can speak effectively or he can't. And if God can speak effectively, then the scriptures are enough. If God cannot speak effectively, then no matter of interpretation, no matter of church authority would ever solve that problem. The acid by which you call that into question will dissolve all of it. And I want to warn you against some of those ways of speaking. They're all on the internet. Now, that's not true. They're in books and stuff. But where a lot of you encounter it is on the internet. These ways of speaking that act like, oh no, we have differing interpretations means we can't know. That's just nonsense. Having differing interpretations means you're human. And what so many are trying to get away from is our own humanness. We can know, but always in a creaturely way. Always in an incomplete way. Always in an imperfect way. And the imperfectness of it does not mean it's not real. It simply means you're just a human. So many anxieties can get stirred up in us because we are wanting a mode of knowing that we are not meant to have. It ends up being an idol. And so many ways of grasping after a mode of knowing that is more than human end in destruction. The point at the heart of the sufficiency of Scripture is that God is able to speak clearly through His Word. To speak effectively through his word and our diversity of understandings and interpretations is in many ways uh, the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper would say things like this is in many ways a beautiful thing as we learn from each other as we encounter perhaps we bring things out of scripture if in one tradition another tradition misses there are all sorts of ways it's actually a deeply good thing that uh, scripture and our, our uh, human knowing functions in that way One of the things I was hoping to show you by spending all this time on point one is the way how that understanding of inspiration and canon leads to that confidence in sufficiency. The testimony that comes out of the event of the resurrection of Christ. Letter C. So letter B is the one most clearly in view in the Belgic Confession when the confession says... Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings, nor custom, majority, age, time, or persons, councils, decrees, official decisions. That's having in view that view of church authority in Rome. But what we confess here also rejects, letter C, this means we reject the idea of continuing new revelation. This time, not in the way of church authority, but in the way of spiritual experience, of the Holy Spirit giving spiritual experience that reveals new things. That whole view of canon I've described goes together with a view of the supernatural gifts of the Spirit as being the miraculous signs that belong to that time of the canon being established. God is no longer revealing new revelation precisely because that which laid the foundation of the church has already happened. Those events have happened. The apostolic testimony has already happened. And so we reject the idea that the Holy Spirit is continuing to give to individuals new revelation, new information. Now, I don't think any of us are particularly tempted by the idea that the Holy Spirit is going to give you new revelation. But we are affected by ways of speaking that suggest this. We talk about being led to do something or we talk about... The fact that we have peace about something, meaning the Spirit must be revealing to me this was the right thing to do. Or when we talk about even things like doors being opened or closed, as though God is somehow revealing outside or beyond Scripture what we ought to do, we have to be careful of all of these things as in some way calling into question the sufficiency of Scripture. When it comes to making decisions, all that you need as God's Word to you, All that you need is God revealing something to you is in God's word. In God's word, in terms of what you need from him directly, you have enough in the scriptures. And that too is part of what we are confessing uh, in, in the Belgic Confession. God has told you enough via his word. He has told you to seek wisdom. He has told you to honor and seek the counsel of others, to be wise generationally. You have to make a decision. God's word has given you enough. You have all those other things and you get to just make a decision. What that discussion starts to reveal, I think, is all the ways this doctrine can get misused. If we have said scripture is enough, for life. Say, all right, which job should I accept? What career path? Should I, who should I marry? Is Scripture enough? I want to be a good mechanic. Is Scripture enough? For me, Do I have to find things in Scripture so I could be a mechanic in a Christian way? Some of you know, in the Reformed tradition in particular, there's been ways of speaking of how Scripture speaks to every area of life. Now, that is true, Scripture speaks of God as the creator. So, of course, it affects every area of life. Ways of speaking of Scripture speaking to every area of life that mean now I need a Christian view of everything. I have to have a Christian version of everything. And you can imagine all the ways which this could lead to the misusing of Scripture. So, I am here to say, in a whole bunch of areas of life, in very important ways, Scripture is not enough. The Bible is not enough. What do I mean by that? Well, number three, getting this right. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is carefully limited. This is a limited doctrine, and it only makes sense if you limit it. Scripture is absolutely sufficient, absolutely enough in two ways. What were those two ways back under number two above? everything one must believe to be saved, and the entire manner of service which God requires of us. For salvation and for living in a way that is pleasing to God, Scripture is absolutely enough. For being a good mechanic, Scripture is absolutely not enough. Now, it tells you what you need to serve God in whatever calling God gives to you. But the fact that it is enough in these particular ways does not mean we reject all other authorities. Uh, In fact, that's an important point to say alongside of that. It's carefully limited, those two ways, and does not mean we reject other real authorities. Some examples. Letter A. We still affirm that God makes himself known through general revelation. Don't forget, we spent a whole lesson on the Belgian Confession talking about how the scriptures tell us that the creation makes God known. So we're saying the scriptures are enough in these limited ways, but those scriptures point to the way in which the creation reveals God. If the creation reveals God, how much more would we not say the creation reveals a whole bunch of other things? Mathematics being a good mechanic. These are all things we learn from the way the world works, from how things go in the world. And the scriptures point to the validity of all of those things. It is the scriptures that tell us in Genesis chapter 1, the creation mandate that we were called to take dominion over the world, to learn things about the world, to make things with the world, to all manner of human culture and exploration and scientific investigation. In all of those ways we're saying Scripture's not enough. We learn things elsewhere. And the learning thing elsewhere is affirmed by Scripture. So, what we have to put together here is what we've just said is that Scripture tells us everything we need for the manner of service which God requires of us. And one of the things it tells us is that we need other sources of knowledge. All right? So, one of the, one of the things the Scriptures tell us is that the way we serve God faithfully And the scriptures tell us 100% all that we need for that is to also use other sources of knowledge. And so Proverbs says, go to the ant. Look at how the world works and learn from that. Proverbs says, learn generationally, learn from tradition, learn from wisdom from ages past, Proverbs will itself quote Proverbs that are found almost certainly older than the book of Proverbs in Egyptian wisdom, which were acknowledging the way the world works. And so the scriptures say that one of the ways you serve God is by learning things from other sources. It is enough, but in this limited way. B and C on your outline are another very important way in which uh, this doctrine is limited. Letter B. We still submit to church authority as an authority subservient to Scripture. And I'm going to give you letter C as well, because really these go together. We still receive church history and tradition as having real authority. Um, The Reformed theologian Keith Matheson wrote a book, I believe it's called The Shape of Sola Scriptura, The doctrine of scripture alone is enough for these things. I've quoted it a million times. I've never read it. So I'm quoting other people who have quoted it. And my understanding is that it is in this book that he argues that in modern American Christianity, the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura has been turned into what he calls solo scripture. Scripture all by itself. Scripture, and and that's a distortion of it. At the time of the Reformation, to Oversimplify. We could say that Rome viewed church authority as being over Scripture. The Reformers said, no, let's put Scripture above church authority. So much of American Christianity, and this was happening all right at the time of the Reformation among the Anabaptists, for example, what they heard was, get rid of church authority. Okay? Let's be very clear. The Reformers said, Scripture is over the authority of the church. In American evangelicalism, that became, there is no church authority. That is not reformed. That is not reformational. It is reformational to say the church has real authority. It is reformational to say church tradition has authority. It is reformational to say decrees and councils have authority. The Belgic Confession did not reject any of those things. Rather, it said that all of those things are under Scripture. They are subservient to Scripture. Then others will say, okay, but you've just said individuals can go around and have whatever private interpretation they want. How does the church then have authority? No, that's not the, what the reformers were saying either. Never forget the plural pronouns we submit to Scripture. It is as the church that we are in submission to Scripture. We're not each all just going off on our own, acting as though no one's read the Bible before, or there is no other authority. All these other things, councils, traditions, catechisms, confessions, creeds, these things all have real authority, true authority, and we submit to them always in subservience to Scripture. This is why we have Uh, processes and methods and a kind of, uh, put it another way, the Reformation was reformation, not revolution. It wasn't individuals saying, I'm right, everyone else is wrong. It was rather seeking after reforming within the church according to Scripture. The point here is simply this. To say Scripture is enough is limited, and it's limited in such a way that other authorities are affirmed. They are affirmed as being subservient to Scripture, but nevertheless affirmed. So much chaos in the church has been caused by getting this wrong. Centuries of how Christianity has been expressed in North America have been shaped by the rejection of church authority, thinking that was a reformational thing to do. But it is not. The Reformation affirms all those authorities, but always under Scripture. One more, letter D we still require wisdom as a gift of God. God's word tells you all you need to know from making decisions in a way that will be faithful to him. That does not mean God's word tells you all you want to know. It does not mean God's word tells you everything that will make a decision easy. It does not mean God's word tells you what to do. It establishes what you need. And one of the things God's word says you need is wisdom and the use of wisdom, the application of wisdom. James 1, verse 5 anyone who lacks wisdom, let him seek from God. And God gives generously to all who ask. This is such a deeply important point for getting this doctrine right. At no point does it mean you don't have work to do in how to serve God in how to live before him faithfully. It rather gives you the freedom to do that work, confident that you have what you need in God's word, and that it is God who desires that you then live with wisdom and live with freedom in the good creation that he has made. And here's something I want to be very clear with at this point. I fear that there are too many who hear what we are saying, especially about no new revelation. The Spirit's not going to whisper in your ear what you should do. You need to use wisdom. I fear there are too many who hear that as us saying, God's not involved. As though God just gave you information in a book, and then almost like the deistic God, he's just gone, detached from all of it. I fear that perhaps maybe some Reformed folks make it sound that way. As though we are saying, God is not involved. I think we ought to make it clear more often that we're actually saying the opposite. We're saying God is involved in all of it. God is involved in giving you your interests and desires. God is involved by the Spirit in giving you wisdom. God is involved illuminating the Scriptures and helping you be wise in your understanding of Scripture. God is involved in making you wise about seeking advice from others and honoring what has come before you generationally. All of this is the creator by the spirit uniting you to Christ. I think we ought to be more bold to say that the view that says I've been led, the spirit whispered in my ear, as though that's more spiritual, is actually putting God in a box. As though God's only involved if it's a unique, strange, spiritual experience. Say, no, no, God by his spirit as the creator is involved in all of it. And you get to live with this sense of all of reality, all of creation, being charged with the presence of God, the glory of God, including his work in your life as you make a decision. Your desires, your interests, your seeking after wisdom, the relationships God has placed you in, all of it, God is intimately involved in your life, both in the way of providence and in the way of the Holy Spirit's work. We must be clear when we say these things, we're not, we're not trying to limit God's involvement. We're trying to be open to the fact that he is involved in all of it. Summing all that up, letter E. The Holy Spirit is actively at work, enabling us to receive God's word by faith and uniting us to Christ, the wisdom of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the way in which you have brought us into existence as the church through the gift of faith by the working of your Holy Spirit. Deepen, grow within us our confidence that we have all that we need for salvation and for lives that are pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.